Amen. If you guys have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, that's page 941 in the Pew Bibles, which can be found on your rows. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that home. That is our gift to you. We're glad that you um, have chosen to come and to gather with us this morning. John chapter 1, again, that's page 941 in the Pew Bibles. So Jess and I were able to go see Hamilton this week. Oh, some Hamilton fans. I want to hear gasps like that when I start reading the word. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesus Duke. Uh, yes, we were able to see Hamilton. It sounds like many fans in here, probably people have seen it live, maybe Disney Plus, or you've listened to the soundtrack. I think it's a phenomenal show. We've been a couple times. We won tickets again. We're going, we're going again on Tuesday. <laughs> the Lord has spoiled us. Um, yeah, would encourage you to watch it. It's, it's a phenomenal show. If you're not familiar with the storyline, it's about Alexander Hamilton. That would be the man you would find on your $10 bill. Um, it's about his life, his rise. The show begins with a question that's posed by Aaron Burr. This is his, the, kind of the antagonist of the story. He basically asks, how does this orphaned immigrant with no names, no means, how does he become a national hero? Now, Hamilton is very eager to rise above his station. What he lacks in name, title, land, and money, he makes up for by his intellect, his wit, his courage, his work ethic. Hamilton, though, if you've seen it again, you know, he's not just consumed with the idea of rising above his station. He wants an enduring name and legacy. Okay, he's convinced that future generations will tell his story, that we'll read about him in the history books. This is true. He goes on to be a war hero. He's key um, in ratifying and then defending the U.S. Constitution, our Constitution. He's the first secretary of the Treasury. He was uh, monumental. He was the architect in designing our national banking system. You can't really overstate how important he was in the founding of our country. Okay, but here's my kind of my Hamilton hot take. Maybe it's not a hot take. I don't know. The real hero of the story, it's not Alexander. It's Elizabeth. His wife, Eliza. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> Hamilton, of course, his story takes a sad turn. He goes public with an affair to clear his name from ac accusations of financial impropriety. His son dies in a duel defending his father's name, his honor. Three years later, Hamilton himself, Alexander, he dies in a duel against Aaron Burr. Now, his wife, Eliza, she forgives him through all of this. The Lord, as she says, gives her 50 more years. But she not only forgives Alexander, she loved him and she was committed to his honor, to telling his story, to extending his legacy. The reason that modern historians have, we have so much information about Alexander is because she, um, she preserved all of his writings. She sent out questionnaires to every single person that Alexander had worked with. So she essentially put together this biography. She wanted to save his honor, preserve his honor, and then extend his legacy. She, was, she helped raise funds for the Washington Monument, probably what she was most proud of. She says because of her Christian faith and then also because of her husband's upbringing, she found an orphanage. She cared for hundreds of kids. And so it's because of Eliza that we have the story that we have of Alexander, the war hero, the constitutional lawyer, the financial scholar, the architect, financial architect of our country. 
Eliza provides for us, I think, this model of humility in a generation that's obsessed with pursuing celebrity. What would motivate someone to dedicate their entire life, 50 years of their life, to telling somebody else's story? To holding up their legacy and image? Thinking about our text this morning, John 1, John the Baptist, from conception, he was set apart for the glory of another. From his birth until his beheading, he gave himself to the service of Christ, to his name, to his history, to his narrative, to his kingdom. Now, where is Eliza? In loving humility, she steps into the narrative after Hamilton dies to extend his legacy. John the Baptist's ministry actually precedes Christ. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, John is happy to recede into the background. And for good reason, as the God-man, Christ proceeded and ranks ahead of John. He, of course, is more than a national hero to the, to the people of Israel. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John gives himself to the proclamation of Christ, and he exits stage left when the real star emerges. John, I think, as we'll see, he provides a model for us because of his humility, because of his faithfulness. He points to Christ in such a way that we, our attention, it's fixed upon the presence of Jesus and not the one who's pointing. What would it look like for us to give our life to the mission of Christ? Why would you want to do that in the first place? What is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of our service? John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34 if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then they asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Amen. You can be seated. Our text splits nicely in half. The attention really is on John in verses 19 through 28. 
and then the attention is on Christ in verses 29 through 34. We'll consider four points from the text this morning. We'll see one, the minister's humility, the minister's service, the Messiah's sacrifice, and the Messiah's gift. The first two, of course, are focused on John, the last two on Christ, so they come to us through the words of John. Again, we'll see the minister's humility and service, the Messiah's sacrifice and gift. First, we consider the minister's humility. And by minister here, I mean all those who give themselves in service to Christ. Right? We're all being trained up to do the work of the ministry, all the saints are. So I'm not just talking about someone who holds an office, though John, I think he does serve as a kind of prototypical preacher because of his humility, his faithfulness, and of course, he is a Baptist. <laughs> you, people, you knew it was coming. There it is. Here, here. Okay, verse 19, the minister's humility. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? So John has been preaching and baptizing in such a way that it's created a buzz. The Jews from Jerusalem, I think we're to take that as uh, the religious leadership, more specifically the Sanhedrin, they send this envoy to vet John out. And this makes sense. All of Israel is waiting for a Messiah. And so John comes onto the scene. He's a little eccentric. He's preaching in the wilderness. The natural question is, could this be him? Is this the Christ so they come to him, they ask him, who are you? John is going to give him three I am nots, which corresponds to our point on humility. Verse 19, the end of it, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Like, I know what you're wondering. I'll stop you right there. I am not him. I'm not David's greater son who will bring about new creation, new exodus, new covenant. I'm not the one who's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. You see, all of Israel's history is moving forward to the arrival of this one person. All of their future hopes hang on him. The Christ will bring about salvation and restoration of God's people, and John is emphatic. Negatively, he didn't deny it. Positively, he confessed, I am not the Messiah. Like every December, I too am singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. I am not the Messiah. Now this may seem obvious, but... What a model of ministry we get in John. He readily confesses that he is not the Messiah. The power, the prerogative, the praise, they all belong to another. You see, it's one thing to confess publicly that you're not the Christ. It's another thing to believe that and apply it consistently. Sadly, pastors often readily accrue power and praise to themselves. You should pray for us that we don't. Many go into vocational ministry, false teachers, because they view it as a means of gain. Right, but this is not just a struggle for pastors. Most of us, if not all of us, struggle with the messianic complex. You might think about it. How often do you think that God needs you for something? Or the people around you need you for something? Right? Like apart from you and your mind, you and your counseling, Apart from you and your evangelism or teaching, your hospitality, apart from you and your money, the kingdom would be lost. You might not say it aloud, but in the recesses of your heart, of our hearts, we probably think it. 
you might answer the question, how do I respond to praise, to encouragement in the service of God? Do I thank God that he has by his grace called me, gifted me into service? Or do I secretly bask in the glory that is his? This is step number one for the Christian, both in salvation and in ministry. We confess that we are not the Messiah. John is a model. He means it. He is not the Messiah. So they proceed with their little tribunal. Okay, you're not the Christ. Check. Verse 21, look at the text. They say, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, this is kind of an odd question. Elijah was a prophet that lived about 500 years before this time. So what's with the question? Well, Malachi, it's the final book in our Old Testament. It ends this way. These are the last verses. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, right before this in Malachi chapter 4, Malachi is saying that the coming of the Lord will be like the rising of the sun. Its heat is going to be like a furnace on the wicked. It is going to scorch them. But for those who fear the Lord, the sun is going to bring healing. The presence of God, Malachi says, it's terrible for some. It's great for others. And so God, to prepare the people for his day of visitation, he's going to send first Elijah to prepare the people, to prepare their hearts. And so this is the natural follow-up question. Okay, you're not the Messiah. You're not the guy. Are you the pre-guy? Like, are you the Messiah's hype man? <laughs> are you Elijah? John responds again, I am not. Now, we got to deal with this. We know John the Baptist, he's not the Messiah. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, in Matthew 17, verse 12, he says that John the Baptist is the Elijah. Is Jesus mistaken? Is John lying? There are a number of ways that we can reconcile this. I think what makes the most sense is that the Jews were expecting the person Elijah. John is answering that question. I'm not Elijah reincarnate. Rather, John comes in the spirit, the power of Elijah. We know this. The angel Gabriel tells his father, Zechariah, Luke 1.17, and he, that is John, will go before him, the Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So John goes forward in the spirit, the power, the function of Elijah. He's preparing the people of God for the arrival of God. John is the last in the line of the old covenant prophets, and like Elijah, he's calling the people to repentance. And he's giving them this picture of God's faithfulness, his promise, the fullness of his promises will come in another. Now again, I think we should glean from John his humility. If you're anything like me, you probably would have said, well, I'm not Elijah in the way you are expecting. <laughs> but I do come in his power and his spirit. You should have heard what Gabriel said to my daddy. Right? We often find ways to insert ourselves when we don't need to so that we can gain whatever glory we can, however meager it might be. 
But our mission is not one of attraction, it's of deflection. John knows his task is to prepare the people not for himself, but for another. His goal and our goal should not be popularity, but faithful proclamation. So he answers them, they look at their clipboard, it's pretty small, okay, not the Messiah, not Elijah. They ask him next, are you the prophet? Now this is another Old Testament expectation. Shortly before Israel is to go into the promised land, Moses tells the people this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So Israel is waiting for a new kind of Moses. Now Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3 that the prophet Moses spoke about is Christ. He's the one from among the brothers of Israel that we are to listen to. So are you the prophet we waited for? Again, John answers, verse 21, no. And again, we see in John, there's no desire to prop himself up. He just gives them a no. That's not me. And so up to this point, John has given them three I am nots. They've kind of exhausted their list. So they finally ask him, verse 22, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can, we, what can you tell us about yourself? Okay, we turn now to our second point from the minister's humility to the minister's service. We turn now to the minister's service. John gave us three I am nots. He's now going to give us three positive statements about himself. I am this voice we'll see. I baptize with water. I am unworthy. Verse 23, John said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Notice, I think this is important for us. John might not be the Messiah. He's not, but it doesn't mean he doesn't have a mission. Like, yes, he might not be the word, but he is given a word from God. He is one crying out in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, no doubt we are not the Christ, but we have been called by him. Set aside by God to walk in good deeds, which he has prepared ahead of time for us. Like John, we are called to preach the good news of the gospel And think about this, John was called to preach about something he had yet to experience. Brothers and sisters, we get to preach about one who's already come, who we've already experienced. In our sense, it ought to be easier. We've come to taste and to see the gospel. John's ministry was one of preparation. Okay, so he answers them from a text in Isaiah 40, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John turns from these kind of end time, these eschatological figures to his own function. Isaiah 40 calls for the flattening of the roadways, of the mountains, in preparation for the Lord's arrival. But you see, it's not the mountains or the hills or the roadways that need leveling before the arrival of God. It's the hearts of the people. Just as we saw in Malachi 4, the sun will bring healing on the righteous, but it will burn up the wicked. The coming of God will be great for those who long for his arrival, but terrible for those who oppose him. And so John is sent to prepare the people by preaching. What's his message? We see it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. It's short, 
It's short enough to tweet. It's not palatable enough to get retweets. Repent because the kingdom of God has come near. So who are you? I have come to prepare the way of the Lord. John continues to unimpress his jury. He doesn't seem to care. I like that about him. So they hit him with another question. Verse 25. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? Now this is really a question of authority. They're wondering, if you're not one of these guys, why are you baptizing? Okay, who do you think you are? Now this is why John's ministry is creating such a stink. Baptism is not an old covenant sign. Okay, so you might just for a second kind of pause what you think about baptism. But baptism in this time had gained traction because of texts like Ezekiel 36, 25. This is actually a promise of the new covenant. God says there, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Okay, so baptism has grown some traction. But here's what's important. It's the Gentiles who are being baptized, not Jews. They would be baptized as they were brought into the new as they were brought into the covenant people of God. So you can see what the implications of John's actions are. By calling everyone, Jew and Gentile, to repent, by calling Jew and Gentile to be baptized, he is saying that being born a Jew doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. He's saying that we're all guilty of sin. He's saying being a Jew will not save. Now Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, he captures... One of John's encounters with the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is John speaking to them. He says, therefore produce fruit, with, con- produce fruit consistent with repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. John is telling everyone in Israel what they do not want to hear. You're not who you think you are. No family tree is going to save anybody on the day of judgment. Repent. I say this to anyone who's here who maybe thinks that they're a Christian simply because you grew up in a Christian household, simply because your parents are Christian or your spouse is a Christian or your roommates are Christian. Maybe you think you're a Christian because you are a good person or because you go to church twice a year. You should repent. It is by repentance and faith alone in Christ alone that we will be saved on the day of judgment. John goes on, verse 26, I baptize with water, but someone stands among you, but you don't know him. John again is directing the attention away from himself as they're asking why he baptizes. He's basically saying, I only baptize with water. It's an outward sign. Verse 33, one is gonna come who will baptize with the Spirit. And here's the thing, the one you're looking for, he's already here. Think back to the prologue. John, the evangelist there, is telling us that Christ made the world, but it didn't recognize him. That Christ came to his own people, but they didn't receive him. Well, the baptizer is telling them here that the one with the greater baptism has already come. Like the one you're looking for is here and you're missing him. You're so busy figuring out who sent me you should be rending your hearts in sorrow over your sin. Right, the day of the Lord is upon us. You're going to miss his healing, but you will not miss his judgment. John goes on, 
Verse 27, he is the one who comes after me whose sandals strap I am not worthy to untie. Okay, they're asking a question about authority. John says, this is the authority. I'm not even worthy enough to touch his feet. At this point, a student of a rabbi was expected to do anything, anything that the rabbi told them to do except for one thing. It was to untie their sandal straps. It was so degrading, so humiliating. It was the one thing that separated a student from a Gentile slave. John is saying that before Christ, I am not a student, not a servant, not even worthy to be a slave. To touch his feet is above my station. Brothers and sisters, this is the right posture before the word enfleshed. The Messiah that we heard about in the prologue, he is the eternal word of God. The son in the bosom of the father. To observe his glory is to see the glory of God. Rather than assuming that we deserve a ministry of popularity, rather than assuming we deserve some kind of office or title within the church, rather than assuming we deserve praise, the Christian should understand that they deserve nothing good from the hand of God. To remove the dusty and dirty sandals of God become man is an honor of which we do not deserve. Friends, there is nothing in service to Christ that is beneath us. It is all beyond us. And yet God in his loving kindness, he calls us into ministry. It is in, with humility that we should proceed in the work. Knowing it's not because we're worthy, it's not because God needs us that he calls us, it's because he's being merciful. So we, NBC, we must as a church echo John, right? We're not the Christ, we're not Elijah, we're not a prophet. We are fundamentally unworthy. And yet, we have been cleansed by the Lamb and called by him to do work. Like John the Baptist, we should proceed in humility and gratitude and faithfulness, pointing to the Messiah. We turn now to consider the Messiah, two points, here, first, we'll consider the Messiah's sacrifice. The Messiah's sacrifice. In verse 29, it takes us to the next day. Presumably, the Messianic search committee, they've left. John is preaching again, maybe to his disciples, to whatever crowds have come out to hear him. Now, let's say you're one of John's disciples. Okay, day after day, you've heard John's sermon. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't matter what text John is preaching. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The dude's got one sermon. It's a good one. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And one day you hear John exclaim, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the kingdom of God is at hand to the kingdom of God is here. And that is how we get in. Behold, the king come to die for his subjects. Look, the Lamb of God. Now, we're so familiar with John 1, that it doesn't shock us, the language of him as lamb. But this was not the messianic image that they were, would have been picturing. They would have expected John to say something like, Look, the king of Israel who removes his enemies from the world. 
Look, the shoot of Jesse, who gives guidance to the world. Look, the lamb of Judah, who rules over the world. If you were a Jew, you would have expected anything else. The new David, the new prophet, the new Adam even, not the lamb of God. But what John is doing is he's picking up this thread that runs through the Bible leading to Christ. He is identifying the heart of his message and ministry. The word enfleshed is the Lamb of God. Brothers and sisters, the Christ was born to die. Jesus is the Passover Lamb of Exodus 12. He is slaughtered in the place of the children of Israel that the judge, the slayer, might pass over their sins. It is by his death that we go free from bondage. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. The sin offering we see in Leviticus 4, the sin of the world is placed upon his head. He dies in our place making atonement for sins. Justice has been satisfied that we, the sinners, might be declared righteous. Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant, the messianic lamb we see in Isaiah 53. As you hear this, think about Christ as lamb. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. He is the lamb who takes away our sin. We get the first picture, really, of sacrificial lamb imagery in Genesis, chapter, Genesis 22. There the Lord has called Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son whom he loves. Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain to give him up as an offering. Isaac's not a dummy. He asks his father, verse 7, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb? Abraham answers, God himself will provide, and he did. The careful reader of scripture from Genesis to the Gospels is asking, where is the lamb? The true Passover lamb who will free his people from bondage. Where is the lamb? The once and for all sacrifice that will atone for sins. Where is the lamb? The one who will be pierced to carry away our iniquities. To the question of the Old Testament, John exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's here. He's finally here. We celebrated his arrival yesterday, but don't forget he came to die. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel, that it is the Lamb who takes away our sin. It's not the Lamb and you 
It's not the lamb and your pastor, not the lamb and your church. It's not the lamb and your good works, not the lamb and your giving or your disciple making, not the lamb and what you abstain from, not even the lamb plus your faith. It is the lamb and the lamb alone who atones for the sin of the world and he takes them away. We simply cling to him by faith. We plea his blood before the slayer. This verse is loaded with comfort for the Christian. Look at it again. He takes away our sin. He sweeps them away. Our case is closed. Because of the Lamb's death, we do not have a criminal record. In the mind and court of God, our sin has been dealt with once and for all in this substitutionary death of Jesus. You see, God indeed had kept a record of our wrongs and he nailed them to his son on the tree. They do not stand between us and God at all. Christ has taken our sin away by taking them upon himself, by taking them to the cross, by taking on the wrath of God. Our record reads righteous. Brothers and sisters, Satan may and will accuse you, your conscience may condemn you, but God does not if you are in Jesus. It is, as the psalmist writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. John is saying, look, the king has come and he's come to die. The means by which he comes into his kingdom and grants entrance into his kingdom is his death. Not only the lamb, not only the lion of Judah, but the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. If you are visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. That God himself became a man, that he lived perfectly on our behalf, that he died for our sins. He has dealt with our wrongs completely. We can be forgiven simply as a gift. We simply receive it by faith. We would implore you to receive this gift. The gift of God's grace in his son to you. Don't miss it like many of the Pharisees did. Now John tells us at the end of John chapter 21 that there's so much good news about Jesus that you could fill the world with books about him. There's so much that can be said about him. But when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says one thing, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The prologue showed us if we're going to get Christ right, we must understand he is the God-man, the eternal word of God in flesh. If we're going to get his mission and therefore the message of the gospel right, we have to understand this, that he came to die for sinners. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No doubt there are many wonderful things that we should tell non-Christians about Jesus, but if we do not tell them that he died for their sins, we have not shared the gospel with them. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah comes to sacrifice. He also gives us a gift, as if his life wasn't enough. We consider now our last point, the Messiah's gift, John goes on, this is the one, this verse 30, the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. 
This is basically the prologue and microcosm. Jesus was born as a man after John the Baptist, and yet he outranks him in status. He's the Messiah because he existed before him. He goes on, 31, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Okay, apparently, John didn't play with his cousins too much because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Too much time in the desert. But then he tells us how he came to know that Jesus is the Christ. This is what he's recounting in verses 32 through 34. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So what John the Baptist is doing now is he's recounting a previous encounter with Jesus to the crowd. Jesus rolls up. John says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and this is how I know. God sent me to baptize. God told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. Okay, this presumably Jesus' baptism, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 3. It's because the Spirit rests on him and because Jesus baptizes with him that John knows this, this is the Son of God. We see that Jesus is, Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. This means two things for us. One, he's the bearer of the Holy Spirit. It rests upon him and he's the bestower of the Spirit. He both receives and gives the Holy Spirit. First, he's the bearer or receiver of the Holy Spirit. He's not like one of the old prophets or priests or kings of Israel who are maybe filled with a season by the Spirit. He is the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. The Spirit rests upon him and does not depart. It is given to him without measure. This is in fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah helps us in particular. Isaiah chapter 11, this is a popular Christmas text. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Then Isaiah 42, verse 1, you'll hear echoes of this in Jesus' baptism. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1, Jesus reads this in Luke chapter 4 and says that on this day this has been fulfilled. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Jesus is the spirit anointed Messiah. That means that Everything Jesus does as man, he does in the power of the Spirit. Whether he's eating or drinking or learning or teaching, whether he's healing or doing miracles, fighting sin, fulfilling all righteousness, when he's offering himself up to God, he acts as the Son of the Father in the power of the Spirit. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. It rests upon him such that he can bestow the Spirit as a gift. Verse 33, again, John says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who 
baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John is wanting us to see this contrast of baptisms. John is like, I only baptize with water. He's going to come to baptize with the Spirit. True story. I was at a college ministry summer project. We were doing evangelism on the beaches. Maybe some of you guys have done a summer project like this. And I was paired with this brand new Christian. He'd been a believer for like six weeks. His name is Alex. We go to this couple. We strike up conversation with them. We start sharing the gospel with them. They tell us they're Christians. And it comes up that Alex is a new believer, like six weeks. They say, have you been baptized? He said, yes. Then they said, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire? <laughs> I said, it's time for us to go. <laughs> the, the answer to that question is yes, but not how you mean it. You see, we baptize with water. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We baptize as a sign that the Holy Spirit baptism has already occurred. Now, this is where there's John the Baptist's baptism is different than ours. His is not new covenant baptism. His was a baptism of preparation. Now, we know this for certain because in Acts chapter 19, some of John's disciples, it says they were baptized into John's baptism. They needed to come to believe the gospel. They were baptized with water and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John's baptism is done away with. We baptize as a sign that the reality has already occurred. Jesus has baptized them, not into water, but into his Holy Spirit. This is in fulfillment of, of Scripture, Ezekiel 36. This is why for John, it's, such, it's so illuminating. The Spirit rests on him and he baptizes with him. He sees this as fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, beginning in 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Part of Israel's messianic expectation, it was the outpouring in a new and unprecedented way. It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This happens clearly, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It is Jesus there at Pentecost baptizing his believers with the Holy Spirit. It is one of the blessings of the new covenant. Friends, again, to receive Christ is to receive him and all his benefits. The forgiveness of sins, his righteous standing, his kingdom, his sonship, his spirit. We see that the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, he's not just dealing with the punishment of sin. He's dealing with its power. He gives us his spirit that we might walk like him. And so when John sees the spirit descending and resting on Jesus, he knew this is the son of God. He's the one who can baptize with the spirit. It cannot be anybody else. The one who receives and baptizes with the spirit must be the word enfleshed. As man, he receives the Spirit without measure. As God the Son, the Spirit eternally proceeds from him. It had to be God the Son become man. John the Baptist knows this. He says, this is the Son of God. We see the portrait that John the Evangelist has been giving us in the first chapter of John. Who is Jesus? He is the Word of God. He is the Son of the Father. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the spirit-anointed Messiah. Who are we? 
none of those things. Notice that even in the second half, all the words come to us from John the Baptist, and yet we don't think about him at all. That is the model of ministry. We don't look at the one who's speaking, but the one he's speaking about. We are not even worthy to untie his sandals, and yet he calls us into ministry, into the joy of proclaiming the good news that the Lamb of the world has come to set the captives free. He gives us a spirit that we might walk in that power in ministry. Again, friends, what John was looking forward to, we have tasted in its fullness the gospel. Why would we give our lives in service to Christ? It is because he gave his life to save ours. He is God, become man, become lamb. May we preach about this glorious Messiah in such a way that the attention is fixed on him. Let's pray.